Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Drug overdose deaths are on the rise around the country, and experts are pointing to methamphetamine as a growing threat. You think the heroin epidemic is something you have no clue. Like, everybody's switching to it. Switching to? The meth. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll learn about the effect of meth use on the opioid crisis. Plus, a new report details how the Northeast is warming faster than other parts of the country. We'll explore why and also what individuals can do to make a difference. We have to do something about it and we have to keep working toward it. And we can't give up because there is still time. Speaking of climate change solutions, what about forests full of trees? Eventually, with a combination of satellites and with drones and laser scanning, uh, we're headed to the point where we, we might be able to know something about every tree in the U.S. And we'll look at George H.W. Bush, New Englander. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. New data from the National Center for Health Statistics show that the rate of drug overdose deaths rose from 2016 to 2017 by almost 10 percent. And all of the New England states, except for Vermont, have overdose death rates that are higher than the national average. In just a minute, we'll talk to a researcher about those numbers. But first, let's explore one street drug, methamphetamine, that barely registers on that list as a cause of overdose deaths. Meth has long been a problem in more rural states. For instance, the number of meth cases reported by New Hampshire's state crime lab more than doubled from 2016 to 2017. But now the drug is seen as an emerging threat in Massachusetts. WBUR's Martha Biebinger looks at the ways meth is twisting and compounding the opioid epidemic. Meth is a stimulant, like cocaine. There's a form called crystal meth that looks like shiny, bluish chunks of glass. And there's a white powder, which is how a man we'll call just Michael, because of his illegal drug use, was introduced to meth about three years ago. Me and my girlfriend had a heroin dealer lacing it, lacing our heroin with meth. Then I shot it, just meth, straight, and I fell in love. A few steps away, on a city block in Cambridge, a woman named Jade says people of all ages are falling into the same trap. Young kids, older people doing math because you're in your 60s and 70s, it makes you feel 20. Physically, yeah, it's an amazing feeling, but it's an evil, evil, evil drug. Because a user speeds through two, three, or four days without sleep, crashes, and then repeats, damaging their heart, lungs, kidneys, teeth, and skin. You see these sores on my face? This is from meth. Jade points to scabs and more open wounds on her forehead and cheeks. Michael pulls up a pant leg to reveal a calf pocked with sores. But he's hooked. You think the heroin epidemic is something you have no clue. Like, everybody's switching to it. Switching to? The meth. Switching, says Michael, because meth is cheaper and users don't feel as sick when they come down. Women say they smoke, snort, or inject meth to stay awake at night and avoid rape or theft. Other drug users say they tried meth because they were afraid of overdosing on fentanyl. But now there are reports of fentanyl added to meth, either intentionally or accidentally. 
Michael says more meth is bad news for everybody. Think of it, he says. With opioids, a drug user just nods off. A meth head's out freaking out, running around the streets, and when they don't have what they want, they're going to do whatever they have to do to get it. The heroin epidemic is like preschool hour compared to when this gets full tilt. In the Boston area, meth may hit full tilt sooner rather than later. I think we're on the verge of it really engulfing our drug-using population out here. Kristen Doneski is the outreach manager at Access, a drop-in center for drug users in Cambridge that offers support groups on needle exchange, basic nursing, and overdose education. Doneski says about a quarter of her clients are using meth, more than double the rate two years ago, and it continues to rise. We've really had to research um, new resources for people because we don't have a lot of them here. So Doneski is downloading brochures and articles about meth alerts from the West and Midwest, where meth is already entrenched in the drug supply. Doctors are looking West as well for guidance. A patient who is bouncing around a room on meth is very different from one slumped on a couch sedated by heroin or fentanyl. Dr. Laura Keough runs a walk-in clinic for substance use disorder at Massachusetts General Hospital. When people come in under the influence of methamphetamine, they can often be very paranoid, they can be fearful. So it's important for all staff, including front desk staff, to be trained in how to de-escalate to help, Keo tells staff to move meth patients to the top of her walk-in list. But once inside the exam room, Keo's treatment options are limited. Some meth users take an ADHD med like Adderall or Vyvanse, which are in the same family as meth, to manage their addiction. But those drugs are not approved for treatment. Keo says the few programs that treat a meth addiction use rewards and relapse warning cues. Behavioral interventions that are very difficult for people to access when they're in the throes of addiction, particularly if they're living in environments where there's a lot of drug use or on the street. Those are some of the challenges with meth and treatment. Now, here's how meth is messing up treatment for an opioid addiction. Patients addicted to heroin are often prescribed a daily medication to curb their cravings. But lately, Keo says many patients will try meth while in treatment for their opioid use disorder, and then they lose track of the treatment plan. There's this kind of binge and crash cycle, which makes it very hard for people to keep appointments, to show up on time, to really engage in care. Across the country, meth overdoses are up, with symptoms of heart attack, seizure, paranoia, or a stroke. But meth barely shows in current death data for Massachusetts. John Eady is not surprised. You're not going to necessarily see the full impact of what started up with abuse of meth right now for another four or five years. Edie works with the National Emerging Threat Initiative, a program that advises the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. He says brain and heart damage from meth is cumulative, not immediate. Edie co-authored a report released in September that warns of surging supply and demand across the country for cocaine and meth. Edie says backyard meth labs are largely gone, replaced by meth that comes into the U.S. through some of the same Mexican cartels that market it with heroin, fentanyl, and cocaine. So uh, what you're dealing with now is a much more pure meth uh, and with people very actively promoting its use. And it's very dangerous and will cost many lives. If concern about meth isn't front and center in Massachusetts, says Edie, it should be. It'll catch up with you. What's going on in the nation is simply a forerunner for what you can expect there in the Northeast.
The new warnings about meth, on top of evidence that cocaine and benzos are present with fentanyl in the vast majority of OD deaths, suggest we no longer have an opioid-specific epidemic, says Michael Botticelli with the Graken Center at Boston Medical Center. The data are pretty clear that we have a drug use epidemic and a drug overdose epidemic. I think we have to really be careful that our strategies speak to all of those issues. We have to focus, as Botticelli, on the deeper reasons our friends and family members use drugs. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. That drug overdose epidemic is getting worse year by year, according to a new study by the National Center for Health Statistics. And New England is being hit harder than almost any other region. We called up Holly Hedegaard. She's co-author of this report. And she started by telling us about the trends in drug overdose deaths from 1999 to 2017. In 2017, there were more than 70,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States. And uh, the rate was up to 21.7 per 100,000, which is actually almost 10% higher than it was in 2016. So overall, between 1999 and 2017, the rates have increased rather dramatically, and particularly after um, 2014. When we look at our region of New England, we see something fairly troubling, that all the states, save for Vermont, have a statistically higher overdose death rate than the national average. And I'm wondering if you can talk us through that a little bit, because it is unusual to see a cluster of all these states have rates that are so much higher than the the national average. Yeah, when we looked at the individual states and the drug overdose rates by state, actually there were about 20 states plus the District of Columbia that had drug overdose death rates that were higher than the national rate. And as you mentioned, a lot of them were in New England. The highest states are West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. But coming up uh, along behind those are New Hampshire with a rate of about 37 per 100,000 and Maine with a rate of 34.4 per 100,000. Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut also had rates that were higher than the national average. Clearly, it's a trend that people need to be aware of and be working on to better understand what's happening in those states and what can be done to try to lower those rates. Are you able to parse out what types of drugs people are overdosing on? Because some parts of the country and certainly some parts of our region have more influence of certain drug types than others. One of the most striking things that we've seen in the last several years is the increase in the number of deaths that involve synthetic opioids other than methadone. And this is a category of deaths that includes fentanyl. I know fentanyl has been in the news quite a lot, so um, it really is that category. It includes fentanyl, but other drugs as well, that really has seen the the greatest increase. And we were talking earlier about increases seen in a single year. For that particular category of drugs, the synthetic opioids other than methadone, which, as I mentioned, includes fentanyl, in a single year from 2016 to 2017, that rate increased by 45%. Whereas for a lot of the other kinds of drugs, the rate in 2017 and the rate in 2016 was fairly similar. So clearly that's a category of drugs that really um, needs some attention and um, is a big factor in why the overall drug overdose rate is going up. And that's going to include both people who are knowingly using and abusing fentanyl and people who are finding fentanyl lacing other products that they're choosing to use. That's correct. So we know that um, the drug is present, but, you know, whether or not it was 
a pharmaceutical drug or if it was illicitly manufactured or if they knew they were taking it, maybe they thought they were taking something else and they didn't realize that the, the substance that they were taking had been contaminated with fentanyl or for some other drug. Those are all part of the mix in terms of the numbers that we're seeing. What else do you think that we can take away from these numbers? What else can we learn? Well, certainly the patterns have been changing over time, and this issue of the synthetic opioids is one that we really need to pay attention to. We do have some preliminary numbers from early 2018, and those preliminary numbers are looking like, at least for some of these drugs, it might be starting to level a little bit. We're hoping that the trend that we saw between 2016 and 2017 for natural and semi-synthetic opioids and heroin might actually continue in terms of leveling and not increasing so much. So even though the rates have been going up, I think there's been a lot of effort to try to at least keep level, if not try to decrease the number of deaths involving some of these other subcategories of opioids. Holly Hedegaard, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Coming up, why is the Northeast warming so much faster than the rest of the country? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. This week, an international climate change conference in Poland showed exactly how challenging a global problem we face. It kicked off only a few days after the release of the fourth National Climate Assessment, a document that shows just how big the impact of climate change is and will be in this country. And this assessment found something pretty interesting about the Northeast. Our region is the fastest warming in all of the contiguous United States. So what's going on? We called Mary Stampone to find out. She's New Hampshire State Climatologist, an associate professor at the University of New Hampshire, and co-author of the Northeast section in the fourth National Climate Assessment. Mary, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. In the Northeast chapter of this climate assessment, The report notes that by 2035, the Northeast is projected to be more than 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit warmer on average than during the pre-industrial era. Let's start by getting a baseline of understanding here. What exactly does that mean, 3.6 degrees higher than than the pre-industrial era? What does that mean? It's not necessarily that we're going every day in, you know, 2030, we're going to be 3.6 degrees of Fahrenheit warmer than we were 150 years ago. That's a baseline average. And what that is giving us is an idea of how much energy is put into the atmosphere. And with that, we're going to see changes in our seasonality. Winter season is warming at a faster rate than other seasons. Changes in the transition between seasons and also more water in the air that can lead to an increase in precipitation. So this amount of warming is seen as the largest increase in the contiguous United States and would occur, according to your report, as much as two decades before the global average temperatures reach a similar milestone. So why is our region, specifically the northeast of the United States, warming so much faster than everywhere else? This is part of a larger trend of the higher latitudes is in the northern hemisphere where we see much faster rates of warming associated with the pole on into the higher mid-latitudes than we do see at the tropical regions. 
And a lot of this is driven by the faster warming during the cold season. The faster warming during the cold season. Explain that a bit more. So in the cold season, uh, much of these latitudes, so New England on up, um, were covered with snow um, and oceans are covered in ice up at the poles. And so what this bright white surface does is reflect a lot of sunlight, which reduces um, how warm it can get here at the surface. And so as the global pattern of warming results in less snow and ice cover or thinner snow and ice cover, more of the sunlight can be kind of taken in by the surface and used to heat, which then results in greater loss of snow and ice. So talk about some of the risks that that presents specifically for our region. And we talk a a lot about these in the show, about fishing, about agriculture, uh, about just uh, our rivers and streams and coastlines. But in the way that you look at this, what are the biggest risks for the Northeast after looking at this climate assessment? There are going to be a lot of changes in our ecosystems as a result of this. So, you, you know, you mentioned agriculture. That's one type of ecosystem, but our natural ecosystem. So the warming of the winters as well as earlier springs are a great concern because of how our forests depend on snow cover. The pests, invasive species can be kept at bay in response to either snow cover or really cold temperatures during winter. So as that you know, it gets milder and um, the springs come earlier. So you have an extension of the growing season, which a lot of people see as a good thing. And it is in some ways, but it allows for um, the earlier and longer emergence of various pests that can impact our forests, as well as human health. If you think about vector-borne diseases carried by ticks and mosquitoes, that season will be longer and will be have a greater exposure. What about the possibility of longer and more severe storm events affecting our coastlines and even inland areas? Places like Vermont and New Hampshire not so many years ago were inundated by rains that caused massive flooding. So these these stronger storm events don't just impact our coastlines, they're impacting everywhere in our region. Yes, and the bigger um, issue with storms is that as the atmosphere can hold more water, we can expect heavier precipitation to come from these storms, so more intense precipitation. So in addition to storms being stronger, and so if you're talking coastal storms, you're going to have higher storm surges, stronger winds. We're also going to produce more rain, which leads to greater inland flooding during the events. One of the takeaways for an awful lot of the national media looking at this climate assessment was the impact on the economy of the United States. Not surprisingly, when people start to see the economy being affected negatively, maybe their ears perk up a little bit more. But talk about some of those impacts that you see in the Northeast. Well, yes, if you think of the Northeast and and the large urban areas, uh, those are susceptible to damages from coastal storms. And and in New England, too, it's, it's we deal with nor'easters that happen throughout the winter season. We get more of those than hurricanes. And we saw last winter the damage that a nor'easter can cause along the New England coastline. Flooding can impact, you know, transportation networks. We also have extreme heat that will increase energy production costs. And there's also the impact on winter recreation. That is a really important industry, particularly for northern areas and rural areas that could be impacted by reductions in snowfall and uh, winter seasons. 
And then you add on top of that the fact that we do have an aging, older infrastructure that wasn't designed to handle runoff the way we have or precipitation. And so we're vulnerable there just because of the state of our infrastructure and then adding on top of it more intense storms, more precipitation, more heat. This work that you're doing has become so politically fraught. Science is something that you'd think that all of America would take a look at and say, my goodness, these smart people have come up with an assessment that suggests that we change our ways pretty quickly. But indeed, in a whole lot of places, people want to talk about climate change as more of a political issue and less of a scientific issue. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that that's happened because this is the science is not political. It doesn't care what your political affiliation is, you know, or what your your views or beliefs are. Climate change is happening. And so it's really unfortunate that some people view it that way. But I think we're seeing a bit of change in that, particularly with younger generations. What sort of feedback have you personally gotten about this assessment coming out? Most of the comments I've received are that this is scary. But other than that, I, I, I haven't heard from anyone that has, you know, dismissed these findings. The majority of people I talk to are really seeing the need to be concerned about this. It is scary. And I'm wondering, you, you, you still sound very, very positive and very hopeful <laughs> because it's, it's pretty scary stuff. <laughs> I have to be. I have to be, yes. And you, uh, you know, put all of this together. It's a, it's a pretty sobering report. But we have to do something about it and we have to keep working toward it. And we can't give up because there is still time. Mary Stampone is a New Hampshire state climatologist. She's co-author of the Northeast Section of the Fourth National Climate Assessment, a scary document, but a very interesting one. Mary, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. The National Climate Assessment that Mary Stampone helped to compile says forests play a key role in helping to keep our air clean. According to the report, America's forests stored the equivalent of 11% of the country's CO2 emissions over a 25-year period. That's because when trees breathe, they suck up carbon dioxide, release oxygen, and they store that leftover carbon in their trunks. But as Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, how scientists determine the amount of carbon stored in a tree? Well, that's a question open for debate. When Bob Mara goes into the woods, he takes a tool with him, a hammer, his magic sonic hammer. It's not called a magic sonic hammer. It's called the sonic hammer, but I... I call it the magic sonic hammer just because it looks kind of cool. Mara is a biologist with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. And while the hammer isn't magical, it's about to do something pretty cool. Help us look inside a tree. To do that, Mara hammers nails into the trunk of a sugar maple in northwest Connecticut, girdling the tree with sensors. Then he circles, tapping on each nail. Each tap is recorded by a very polite computer. Mara's recording sound waves, measuring how fast sound travels from the nail he hits to all the other nails around the tree. It's called sonic tomography. Think of it like a CAT scan for trees, a way to peer inside a trunk without drilling to see if a tree is rotting or solid wood. The denser the wood, the faster the sound waves. Dense wood is really good at storing carbon. But if a tree is less dense inside, that could indicate decay. And also that the tree might not be as good at storing carbon as we think. Using a grant from the National Science Foundation, Mara tested his tomography idea, scanning around 70 trees in northwest Connecticut. He found dozens were rotting inside, even ones that on the outside looked good. 
what's going on inside of these trees it's kind of hidden to us for the most part trees that for that otherwise look to be perfectly fine and you would have no reason to think otherwise can have internal decay taking place. Mara says that's an important consideration, especially when it comes to carbon storage or sequestration. If we're going to look to forests as a way to sequester carbon, we should develop much more accurate estimates of how much carbon is actually sequestered. Because, well, there are whole markets based on this, like in California. Its aggressive pollution regulations have fostered an expansive cap-and-trade program. California polluters can offset emissions by buying up carbon credits, and landowners across America can profit by proving their forest is really good at storing atmospheric carbon. Rajinder Sahoda is with the California Air Resources Board, which oversees the program. She explains the process. What you do is you have a measurement at the beginning of that time period that says, here's how much is in my forest. Then, through yearly audits, landowners prove their land over time can store carbon in a way that's better than business as usual. Here's how my forest looks relative to what is the common amount of stored carbon, and here's how much, if I undertake some activities, I can increase that carbon storage in my forest. But measuring all that? Well, here's where it gets tricky. I mean, you look at any tree, especially a hardwood tree, and look at its shape, I mean, that's really complex. Christopher Woodall is a researcher with the U.S. Forest Service. His equations are used by California to calculate stored carbon. You estimate the volume, and then you got to figure out the biomass within that volume, and then turn that into an estimate of carbon. To do that, foresters don't go out and look at every tree. Instead, they sample, measuring a variety of trees and plugging those numbers into a complex model. But forestry science is evolving. Woodall has since published work saying the equations need to be improved, in part because new technologies are making biomass estimates more efficient and precise. I think we're not too far away from not necessarily sampling trees in the U.S., but actually having a true census. Eventually, with a combination of satellites and with drones and laser scanning, uh, we're headed to the point where we, we might be able to know something about every tree in the U.S. He says that could happen soon or in 50 years. But for now, scientists are taking baby steps, trying to assess the role of forests and climate change, because, as Woodall says, it's too important to ignore. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. One of the iconic New England trees, the sugar maple, faces a difficult future with a changing climate. A new study from Boston University finds that the trees need snow to grow. Less snow means maples grow more slowly and they store less carbon in the soil. As WBUR's Barbara Moran tells us, as climate change reduces the amount of deep snow in New England, well, that spells trouble. About 65% of northeastern sugar maples get a deep blanket of snow each winter, which protects their roots from freezing. For five years, BU biologist Pam Templer and her team removed the first weeks of winter snow from patches of New Hampshire forests. The ground froze deeper and longer, damaging the trees. Many people in the northeastern United States rely on sugar maple um, for a living. And if these forests aren't growing as much, it's going to likely affect the livelihoods of the people who rely on this tree species. The study finds the amount of northeastern forests with snowpack could shrink from 33,000 square miles to just 2,000 by the end of the century. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Barbara Moran. All right, so are you depressed about climate change yet? The scale of the problem 
can seem pretty daunting, even to those who dedicate their careers to documenting and combating climate change. So Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever went in search of some of these people, and they told him change can start at home. Even for those in the forefront of climate change research, the findings of the latest studies are pretty daunting. The big take-home was that climate change is just everywhere. It is going to just more and more start to affect every aspect of our lives, both as individuals, as a state, as a, as a country. Andy Pershing is chief scientific officer at Portland's Gulf of Maine Research Institute, and he was the lead author of the Oceans and Marine Resources section of the U.S. government climate report that was issued the day after Thanksgiving. Meeting the challenges ahead, he says, will require unprecedented action by governments at all levels. So then the question is, like, what does that mean for an individual? I think for an individual, what I've come to think about is that it really comes down to kind of moral leadership, just showing that it is possible uh, to make choices that, that lead to a lower carbon, you know, a lower personal carbon footprint, and that that's, that's possible. It's possible to do that and have a satisfying life. And so that's what we've been trying to do. Pershing bought a used Toyota Prius a few years ago. Then he converted his home heating system from oil to electric heat exchangers, which provide efficient air conditioning in summer, too. He says he takes the bus or train whenever possible in his frequent travels. It's the kind of personal effort that other Maine residents whose professions revolve around climate change are making as well. Some choose to live close to their workplace, cutting down on transportation emissions. Some try to eat less meat, whose production generates much more greenhouse gas pollution than plant-based foods. Still, to well, look at this problem and find some good news or some optimism in what we could do is difficult. Barney Balch is a senior scientist at the Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences in East Booth Bay, where he studies tiny phytoplankton, which are increasingly challenged by climate change's effects. He makes a lot of public presentations, and he says the question he most often hears is, well, what can a person do about it? And he was kind of stumped, he says, by the sheer scale of the problem until he noticed that in the U.S., during some economic slowdowns, emissions were in fact reduced because carbon-emitting energy production slowed as well. I realized that the reason for optimism there is that we humans actually can do something about the trajectory of CO2. And that got me thinking, well, heck, there are some things that we could do to try to neutralize our carbon footprint. So Balch and his wife installed solar panels on the roof of their barn. Then they bought an all-electric Chevrolet Bolt. And it goes about 18,000 miles a year on the energy produced by those eight silly solar panels. They also converted their heating system to electric heat pumps powered by more barn roof solar panels. Result? Balch reduced his carbon footprint by about 22,000 pounds this year, the equivalent of planting 570 trees, he says. All of the small changes do really add up in a, a significant way. For Kathleen Meal, who spent much of her career working for an energy efficiency contractor, lowering her personal carbon footprint is a process that started close to home. I guess my personal actions date back to those days of insulating my uh, 1856 farmhouse to within an inch of its life. Meal, who is now a policy advocate for the Acadia Center, an environmental research and advocacy group, says she sought financial assistance from Efficiency Maine. 
That's a program funded by surcharges on electricity and natural gas bills and by pollution allowances that electricity plants in the region must buy. It helps Mainers offset the cost of bigger ticket items such as a home retrofit or buying a heat pump. But even for those who might not have the discretionary income for such purchases, Efficiency Maine is helping with one small buy that can make a big difference. The easiest, most easily available thing that everyone can do in terms of buying new equipment that they're going to use in their home or their business is look at their lights. Michael Stoddard is Efficiency Maine's director. He notes that at stores throughout the state, ultra-efficient LED light bulbs subsidized by Efficiency Maine are priced at about the same as an incandescent bulb, and they use about a fifth as much electricity. So it's pretty cool. And it will last you for 15 to 20 years, that bulb. So if you're like me and you're worried about your old man getting up on a step stool to replace light bulbs, which you shouldn't be doing, you can put one in and it'll be there for many, many years. They won't have to worry about that. And just maybe worry a little bit less about what they can do to make a meaningful dent in reducing carbon emissions. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. Coming up, how George H.W. Bush was shaped by New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. People who live outside of New Hampshire ask, well, about every four years or so, why exactly does this pretty small, pretty white, very cold state always have the first primary in the nation? Well, there's a lot of history and tradition in that complicated answer, but one of the main reasons is one man, Bill Gardner. He's been Secretary of State in New Hampshire for 42 years. But this week, Gardner faced his closest election after a strong challenge. He won his 22nd term by just four votes in the State House. Casey McDermott has been following this race for NHPR. Casey, welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me. Why don't you remind us, who exactly is Bill Gardner? So Bill Gardner is known as the kind of protector of the New Hampshire primary, uh, most notably to people outside of New Hampshire. That's a role he's held for more than four decades. He's been kind of the guardian of the state's political traditions, but he's also been in charge of a number of other, you know, important kind of policy areas with regard to voting administration, but also things like maintaining vital records, business administration, business registrations, and all of the other kind of responsibilities that fall under the umbrella of his office as Secretary of State. So it's a big job, but he's really known for this this one thing. And he was running against Colin Van Ostern. Who exactly is he? So Colin Van Ostern is actually pretty well known in the state's political community. Um, both men are Democrats. That's important to note. Colin Van Ostern is 39. Bill Gardner is 70. I think it's kind of interesting also to point out that Colin Van Ostern was actually born about three years after Bill Gardner first took office. So he was kind of pitching himself as the next generation of elections administration in New Hampshire. And he also kind of nodded to Gardner's focus on the presidential primary in his campaign pitch. He said, look, I really respect what Gardner has done all these years, but he kind of argued that all of the other important responsibilities had taken a back seat while all of the focus was 
placed on maintaining the presidential primary and laid out a lot of kind of detailed policy priorities and policy plans for how he would modernize and update a lot of the functions of the office. So he had a plan for updating the office, for being the new blood. Is there any other reason that he lodged this challenge now? Yeah, I think, you know, a big catalyst was the fact that Gardner accepted an invitation on the Trump administration's Election Integrity Commission, which is now defunct, but existed for a few months in 2017, drew a lot of controversy. And Gardner, I think, faced more controversy than he really ever had before in office. He's enjoyed bipartisan support for decades, really. But the moment that it was announced that he accepted a seat on that commission, he faced, you know, calls, letters, emails, even some protests over his involvement because people took issue with the fact that he would perhaps be giving credence to the president's unfounded claims about voter fraud in states across the country, but also specifically in New Hampshire. The process that you use in New Hampshire to elect a secretary of state is frankly different than it is in a lot of states where voters go to the polls and they elect someone for this top elections job. What's the process like there? Sure. So like you said, in a lot of other states, it might be by a popular vote or the governor or someone else might appoint the position. But in New Hampshire, it's up to the legislators to decide. So they vote on secretary of state during their first meeting as a newly seated group of lawmakers. So that's called Organization Day. That happened this week. And the the way that the vote actually ended up breaking down yesterday was that it went to a second round of voting, which really was unprecedented in recent history. Um, because the first round of voting yielded a one-vote margin for Gardner, but he didn't get enough votes to constitute a majority. So they ended up having to go to a second round. And because this was so unusual that he was facing a challenge to begin with, there wasn't really a lot of precedent for how to handle that. There was debate over whether the candidates should speak to the legislators or you know, how that would be handled. But after all was said and done, they did another round of voting and Gardner ended up kind of eking out a few more votes than the first time around and and therefore walking away with the victory. How did he react to his win? He was pretty celebratory. He, you know, he he has a pretty mild-mannered demeanor, but he, you know, made the rounds. There were a lot of supporters there to hug him. And he, by the time he got back to his office, he was greeted by his opponent who was there to shake his hand and congratulate him, but also a number of well-wishers who were really, you know, really excited for him. And it was funny because at one point he said that it gave him kind of a little bit of a glimpse into what he's seen from candidates over the years, but from the other side. You're like a movie star coming through the halls, they come through, <laughs> people getting autographs. Yeah, well, I, I, I never really could feel what it was like for the presidential candidates to come down, but I, oh, I, I, I got a little to the bit. And do you own office? Do you own office? Do you that was actually Governor Sununu talking to Secretary Gardner. He was there waiting for him in his office to to congratulate him as well and was joking that, you know, if, if Gardner runs, I'll support him. So that kind of shows you the level of support that he has, you know, particularly within the state's political establishment and also, I think, in the Republican establishment as well. Casey McDermott is an investigative and data reporter who's been covering this really interesting story for New Hampshire Public Radio. As always, Casey, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. It. George H.W. Bush, the 41st president of the United States, was a New Englander. He was born in Milton, Massachusetts. He grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. 
He attended Phillips Andover Academy and Yale University, and he visited his family's retreat in Kennebunkport, Maine, almost every summer of his life. He spoke about it back in 1989. This is a place where we uh, really enjoy ourselves, but more than that, kind of re- refurbish our souls and get our batteries all charged up and, and enjoy life really to the fullest. We called up Jeffrey Engel to learn more. He's the author of many books about George H.W. Bush, including most recently, When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War. He's also director of the SMU Center for Presidential History. Jeffrey, welcome to Next. Hi, good to talk to you. Why don't you start by explaining just how growing up in New England shaped George H.W. Bush? You know, it, it really was the foundation for his entire being. It's, it's There's a reason that there's uh, a place that he comes back to, uh, he came back to every summer of his life, except the one where he was fighting World War II, which was uh, Maine, of course. Uh, it, it's there that he really found where he placed and where he was supposed to be within society. As I say, we all know that he was, of course, well-born, well-educated, well and, and well-brought up. But really, it's in New England that he understood that he had a sense of duty to the country uh, and to the community, but also, more importantly, that he was the kind of person that was supposed to take on that duty. You know, we have to remember that the George H.W. Bush that we're remembering from those years was a person who was quite literally born at the top of the food chain. And he was among that class of people that not only thought they had an obligation to be in charge, but that they should be in charge. It really never surprised him that he would be a person who would grow up to think about the presidency because for his family, for his group of people, uh, you know, when they said you could do anything in the world, they took that, that message to heart. Maybe you can put a little finer point on that for us and, and explain just how much of a leg up in the era where he grew up and in the place where he grew up, Greenwich, Connecticut, Andover, and, and all of the, the New England trappings. I mean, h- how much did that put him at the top of the food chain of the time? You know, he was a classic one percenter, is, is the way we might say it these days. You know, I like to say that there's never been a club that George H.W. Uh, Bush never felt that he had a right to belong to, in the sense that he, you know, came from a really established family on both sides of his family. So on one side were industrialists from Ohio, on the other side were bankers. They were people that traced their, their roots back many generations in the country. And he, from the very beginning, knew that he was to go to the finest schools and that he was to have the finest training and that he was um, basically a person for whom responsibility was given to him without a choice, but also responsibility was something that people expected him to do. And so there's a real sense in which, uh, I'll give you a good example, you know, when George Bush went out to Texas in order to set up his first fortune, to try to be an oil man for the first time, you know, he went there with you know, a sense of adventure and a sense of danger, if you will, going out to a new world. But he also went with lines of credit from his father's banker's friends. And he went there with uh, contacts from his father's friends, which is to say that he was a person who always throughout life was able to take on risk, but always knew that he had an incredible social network, political capital, if you will, to fall back upon if he ever needed it. What was the influence in his life of going to Yale University, a place that has produced so many presidents over the years? 
You know, his, Yale was a family tradition for him, and there's many ways in which I think, you know, he's obviously very proud of Yale and enjoyed his time there, but I like to think of it more as a kind of a check-off-the-box experience for him. We have to remember that he chose to go fight in World War II as an 18-year-old rather than go directly to college, which his father and many like him suggested. In fact, one of their family friends, this goes back to your earlier question, one of his family friends was none other than the Secretary of War at the time, what we would call the Secretary of Defense today, uh, who also advised him to go to college for a few years to become a little bit more seasoned. The war was going to last long enough, they said, for you to participate. Well, George Bush didn't want to do that. He jumped right into combat and joined the Navy. And while he was in the Navy, he even thought to himself, maybe I don't need this college thing. He wrote several letters to his father saying, you know, I've collected some money. Maybe Barbara and I, who he had met at this time, will just go start a business. And his father basically said, no. That's not the way Bushes do things, that you must go to college. And he participated in a program that Yale developed at the end of the war for returning veterans where they could basically graduate at an accelerated pace. Rather than taking four, four and a half years to finish, uh, they could do it in a little bit under three. And that was both in recognition of the desire that these people had to get on with their lives and also, frankly, from the fact that Yale was incredibly overcrowded at that time, because basically they had people from their regular classes and then people from the classes that had been off fighting the war at the same time. So he really thought of college as a time to learn, to experience, but also as a a place to go to get to the next place in life, which is where he really wanted to be, which was on his own. Some of the most difficult part for historians like yourself and for people in the media who covered him to grapple with on this week uh, have have been some of the times when he was running for president against Michael Dukakis, mm-hmm. and this is a part of his story that brings him back to the state of his birth, Massachusetts, where uh, the Willie Horton ad, uh, sure. the the dispute over the cleanliness of Boston Harbor comes up, and he's back in Massachusetts kind of uh, waging a different type of war against a different type of opponent to try to become president. Well, and this is this is the campaign not only with Willie Horton, but the campaign where the word liberal became a slur in many ways. Um, in fact, you know, uh, during several points in the campaign in 1988, um, then Vice President Bush said, "Well, you know, I wasn't I wasn't raised to think in Harvard Yard like." Of boutiques of Harvard Yard, like Dukakis was. I mean, as though Yale was any less, you know. But you know, the more you could paint him as uh, as a Yankee, as a liberal, as a feminine, that was something that Bush and his strategists really thought would be helpful. They really tried very hard in that election to make the American people want to pick the stronger moral, physical security candidate. The more they could make the American people uneasy, if you will, they would turn towards. Republican, they would turn towards the bigger man, they would turn towards physically, they would turn towards the war hero. Uh, and time and again, they tried to paint Michael Dukakis as quite literally weak uh, and Bush uh, the opposite as strong. So there's a real sense in which he, rhetorically at least, was willing to turn his back on some of his roots in order to win office. And the other thing, if I could add, we are very uncomfortable these days, thinking back up back on 1988 and the Willie Horton ad, which is one of the most explicit race-baiting ads, if you will, of the entire modern era for a presidency. But that was nothing new. And that was nothing new what he did in the state of Texas. That was nothing new what he, knew what he did in the South. Um, I have to say, you know, this last election in the South, uh, in my home district, in fact, in Texas, outside of Dallas, there was a, a series of advertisements from the white candidate uh, who painted the black candidate in really dark hues 
literally mm -hmm. uh, in his advertisements, really trying to drive a sense of fear. These, these things are uncomfortable back then and uncomfortable today. Do you think that that haunted him in any way? You know, I, I, I actually don't because, you know, he, he understood that, that politics is a rough-and-tumble, winner-take-all game. And at the end of the day, we have to remember that a person who runs for president is not, and I, and I say this as a presidential historian, I would say this from George Washington on, a person who runs for president is not emotionally stable, or at least emotionally typical. Because if you have a big enough ego that you think that only you, among the 200-odd million people in this country, should be in charge, and by the way, in the period that Bush was running, should also have enough power at your disposal to destroy all of humanity, that's unusual. So if you have that ego, you have to really believe that you should be the one to win. And therefore, there's a real sense among these campaigns that, you know, we will do whatever it takes. What role did the state of Maine and Ken and Bunkport specifically play in his life, specifically his post-presidential life? You know, uh, it was home. And I mean that in a, in a real literal sense that he spent every single I mean, when he said this out loud, it's hard, kind of hard to fathom, but it's true. Every single summer of his life, he visited Kennebunkport, with the sole exception of the summer that he was in the South Pacific flying off an aircraft carrier. They didn't allow him to go back then, but every time he had a chance, he went back. That was the place where he recharged. That was the place where he thought of himself as being, you know, most comfortable and most at home. You know, he was very comfortable saying Texas was his home uh, because that's where he made his life. But his life really came from Maine. Jeffrey Engel is author of When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War, as well as other books about the president. He's also director of the SMU Center for Presidential History. He joined us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, it's good to talk to you. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. It really does help. Thanks. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski, and our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music, toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Publix Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.